Welcome to episode 8 of the Celtic Whiskey Pod. I am your host, Al Higgins, and this week we are speaking to Stuart Buchanan, Global Brand Ambassador for Ben Riech, Glendronic and Glen Glassaw Distilleries. Stuart was instrumental in getting the three distilleries revived and back in the public spotlight when a consortium led by Billy Walker brought the three sequentially between the years of 2004 and 2013. He has since become the voice of the three whiskey brands and usually travels the world to spread the love of these great drams. We're big fans ourselves at the Celtic Whiskey Shop, where we were the first Irish stockist, and I myself have really enjoyed far too many of the single cask bottlings of Glendronach over the years. Julie Christie, our head of marketing, joins me on this podcast, and we thoroughly enjoyed talking to Stuart. His eloquence and passion for whiskies made it such an easygoing conversation. There are some sound issues here, and they were due to internet connections dropping out occasionally. Hopefully, they will not spoil the enjoyment too much. I'll be back at the end to summarise. Now, here's Stuart. You're listening to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, the home of unchill filtered conversation. Welcome to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, Stuart Buchanan, Keeper of the Cache and Global Brand Ambassador for Ben Riech, Glendronic and Glen Glasser Distilleries. Could you start by telling us how you got started off in the whiskey industry, where, where you've uh, started uh, working? Yeah, sure. Hi, Al. How are you doing? So, yeah, good to be with you uh, in this nice wee chat in the morning. A bit too early to drink some whiskey, but hey-ho, we can have a dram later. Um, but yeah, I suppose it was in some ways a bit of fate, but in other ways, whiskey had always been around me, I suppose, growing up, because I was originally born in Dumbarton, and everybody knows Dumbarton, it, it was a major whiskey town, actually, you know, one of the biggest whiskey towns in Scotland, um, so I had many kind of family members that, that, that worked in the industry there, and even... My cousin had worked up in Glengoyne as well for a short period. I think Glengoyne was the first distillery I'd been into as a kid. Um, but then when, moving to Mull when we were younger, again, the distillery was always sitting, you know, down in the harbour. And I went across and studied and uh, up in Inverness and ended up working in overhead lines, building power lines across Scotland. And um, that's not the best job in the winter. You know, <laughs> when you're up a, a wind pole in the Isle of Skye getting blown with a Force 9 gale. So the, the one contract did come to an end. It just so happened there was a job available at Tobermory, Tobermory Distillery at the same time. And I thought, well, what will I do? Will I hang out for the winter and go back to the, the wood poles or will I get a nice cosy job in a still house? <laughs> so the still house won. Yeah. <laughs> and that was back, what age was it, 22 or something? So that was, that was me, uh, really started as a stillman in Tobermory, local distillery, and absolutely loved it, absolutely loved it. And um, where did you go on from there? Did, did you move around a few distilleries before ending up at uh, Ben Riech and Glendronach, et cetera? No, no, not particularly. I suppose it was just kind of learning the, the craft, as I say, and also the ins and outs of everything that goes with it, because I think that was one benefit of maybe starting in Tobamori in such a, a non computerized non-automated distillery because it was you know old school you know all steaming whistles you know and, and you had to get in about it to keep it going so I, I learned most of my I did have a kind of a, a, an engineering background obviously with, with my job prior to that and I think that's what interested me about the the boilers for example even just keeping the, the, the stills going the steam works the pipes the, the valves so really I get in about all the all the machinery and and that's where I kind of fell in love with the, the engineering behind whiskey. And, and that yeah. is a part I think I miss the most today, is actually getting my hands dirty in the odd burn here and there with some glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I've, I was at Tobermory just a couple of years ago, and I reckon it's probably not changed very much since um, you're mentioning it there. It's quite interesting. I don't know, Al, maybe if you want to talk about this a bit later, but just the transition from, I suppose, the actual mechanical engineering side of things to more of an ambassadorial kind of role. How did that shift? Again, great so- bit of circumstance as well. And again, back to what I know, I know you used to work with Einstein, and I'm sure you knew Tobin really well at that point. And um, I-, I always remember, I must have been destined to do some kind of ambassadorial work because the tour guys used to come around to Mori and they would hate it if I was at the st- in the still house or at the, at the spirit safe <laughs> because if a tourist asked me a question, I'd be there for an hour talking to them and they were, the tour guys were like, come on, we need to get this tour finished. So I think I was always uh, obviously a good communicator when it came to whiskey, whether it was talking about the middle cut, you know, at the stills or looking at the, the, the foam in the windows and still was boiling up. But I just came to, <laughs> I just loved chatting about it. But moving to Benria really um, 
never had an ambition to be a, an ambassador as such, but it's all part of the role. Yet you're an ambassador no matter what part of the industry you're in. And I think with our size back in 2012, particularly, you know, we'd just taken on Glendronach, our markets were getting bigger, our team was extremely small, and actually the distilleries were running up, up and running well. So um, it, it did give, give me the flexibility by request from the, the boss, um, Alistair Walker and, and Billy, his father, uh, just to move into Agrofis full time. And I had travelled, obviously, through my through my production career to many shows across Europe and the UK. So it was just the next step. And it was circumstance, small teams, bigger world. We need somebody out there to, 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 to start talking. And that, I took that on with relish. And Ben Reich was um, continuously running, wasn't it? That, that never shut down like Glendronic or Glen Glassop. But... Uh, no, it's almost flipping that round a little bit there, Al. Uh, Glendronach was up and running, so it was basically just a change of paperwork, ownership, or keys, and, and walking straight in there. Oh, uh, right. um, uh, Benriach had been closed for two years. It closed down at the same time as um, Alta Bay and Breval and Capardonach. There was basically a kind of big closure. I suppose it was on that allied Chevis takeover period where mm. there was more distilleries in that one group and they, they closed the smaller ones. And because Benria had Longmorn neighbouring it so close, yeah. they decided to to, to upgrade uh, Longmorn uh, back then, and they closed Benria two thousand and two. So it was sitting empty for two years, and I don't know who painted it back in the nineteen sixties, but it hadn't been painted since then. <laughs> and the first job was actually just painting everything head to toe. It was quite bright orange and uh, lime green, which isn't really attractive as a colour scheme, but. Um, yeah, got but, a deal on the paint. Obviously, <laughs> got a, ch- a cheap lot paint been. somewhere. But yeah, that, that was great fun. That though, you know, we stripped the whole place down and, and and built it back together again. And I think that's the best way to know a distillery if you want to know how a distillery works or yeah. any intricacies or details or quirks or traits to it. Take it apart and put it together again. So I was lucky enough to have good people around me all my days actually in the engineering side, and, and a guy Jock Leslie who was a retired uh, Chevish Regal engineer. He came and joined us for that first maybe year, two years, really to get into the guts of Benriach and, and sort it out. And God, I learned so much from him. And as did I, as did I from the previous engineer at Tomori, a guy called Alistair Brown. I don't know if Julie, you knew. Yeah, cross pass, yeah. Yeah. So uh, he was, a, he, again, he, he would just go, here's a pump, fix it. That was about as much as my learning from him. But that's the way you got to do it, just dive in and, and get things done. <laughs> Yeah. And was there any kind of thought of uh, changing things the way, way so that the process was done at Benriac or was it just like look for an opportunity to make things better along the way? But Yeah, I think I think was if you look at if you look at even historically, Benriac is such a fantastic working distillery as far as balance and as far as flow. You know, when you see sometimes a line diagram, diagram of how to make whiskey, mm. you know, to simplify the process. But yeah. it's like that. It's just it comes in in the barley at the granary. Then 75 metres later, or actually 65 metres later, it comes out and spit it into the warehouse. And it's such a beautiful flowing distillery. And strangely, I found some documentation back from back in 1898. And even back then, there was articles written how beautifully Benriach was designed and how it was such a, a, a flowing, ahead of its time distillery from back then. Um, yeah. but it's was very that Alfred Barnard's? That, that was actually not quite, it was, um, it was into the John Duff and Charles Doyle kind of comment okay. forward there, and a lot of commentary at the time of how, how well it was designed. Mm. But it really is, it shed, we shed a lot of weight. We probably lost about 30 tons of steel, just by streamlining all, all stuff that had been almost antiquated pipework that had been kind of superseded, etc. So mm. it was great fun. And I've still got a lot of scars and bruises and what have you. Burns and things. And uh, Glenn Glasser, was that a bit more of a challenge, getting that one? Um, Well, not so much in the production point of view, because Stuart Nickerson before us, and and I had been to Glenn Glasser while Stuart and the team there were getting up and running and privileged enough to taste the new make spirit back when they first started, before we had any involvement with it. But the production was great. Stuart Nickerson really had got that up to speed. The only thing they didn't have investment in or money for, there was about five houses there that had really fallen into disrepair, which we've been through a programme of refurbishment and now they're 
beautiful properties on, on, on the land there. And even silly things like the roadways, getting them all tarmac. So it, it was more kind of aesthetics outside rather than machinery inside when it came to Glenglassa. And as I say, Glendrona, maybe the same thing. Uh, production was, you know, flowing well. The only things we had to do there, again, was touching up some of the, the, the aesthetics outside, the houses, the grounds, etc. Uh, but yeah, relatively simple. I think like our listeners would probably be quite familiar with Glendronach and, and obviously been reacted, but not, not hugely so much Glenglassa. Um, like in your words, how would you kind of explain each brand in really simple terms for them? Yeah. And, and that's, that, that's why I love a bit being able to talk about these, the three distilleries together because, you know, even just to give you a, give the, the listeners a picture of where I am. So I'm in Elgin, so I'm just about three miles away from Benriach. You know, I was up at Benriach yesterday doing a video for Japan. Blue skies, you know, horizon to horizon, the pagoda there. And, and Benriach's always got big blue skies. I think Speyside it has got that drier climate, it has got that warmer feeling, that brighter feeling in Speyside itself. And Benrith does represent that. It's got this lovely, playful character, the bright, crisp nature of its style, the orchard fruits, for example, that run through it. And actually the production, if you go to the start of the production, that high minerality of the water we have at the, the, the build, first building block, every stage, every part of the process drives towards this fruit, fruit complexity and that orchard fruit complexity. And it's purposely driven that way eh, due to that water, that, that hard minerality of the water. But then you go to Glendronach, totally opposite. So again, with the water and the production and the history and the, the cask profiles there, everything's driving down the way, you know, whether it's the steep times in the mash, the fermentation times, the beautiful saxophone shaped stills, the middle cuts. Glendronach's down, down to the bass notes, the really bass tones. But Glenglassa sits in this most unusual bracket where I've never seen a distillery that actually is captured so much by its landscape, you know? And, and again, just talking about where we are, I'm in, I'm in Elgin here, top of Speyside, you know, Glendronach's maybe 45 miles east into Aberdeenshire, then, you know, forming a triangle from here, Glenglassa is about maybe 25 miles east to the coast, then another 25 miles to Glendronach into Aberdeenshire. So this lovely triangle we have, and then they're not far apart geographically, but they are so different. And I think, again, talking about Glenglassa particularly, very much of in its landscape. You know, right in that North Sea, you know, you get the wind blasting into the warehouses. Also a very high minerality, very unusual stills. I think there'd been a lot of uh, um, engineering done back in the 70s to almost tweak the spirit style. And, and they were looking to, to create a, almost a, a uniqueness to that style back then. So they've got very tall stills, very angular stills, um, as well as that, you know, high minerality. The new make spirit is almost tropical that comes off it, you know, and and then then in maturation you get that crack of sea salt running through it. And if you were to go to Glenglassa just now, which I love at this time of year when the gorse flowers are are blooming in that bright mm-hmm. yellow, so if you walk from the distillery to the beach with a glass of the Evolution in your hand, which is the Glenglassa fully matured ex Tennessee whiskey barrels, you nose the whiskey, you get the coconut off the American oak. You walk to the beach, you get the coconut smell off the broom flowers. Yeah. You, you know, as a whiskey, you get that wee crack of sea salt. You walk to the beach, you get that wee wave of sea spray coming on you. So again, it's just so much of the landscape. It really is. And also barley growing there historically. The distillery itself used to be a mill back in the day, uh, Craig's Mill. Mm. So again, has been a history of barley growing there. And there is actually an old windmill, stone windmill, people know as a cup and saucer beside the distillery. So, yeah, they're just again very much of this landscape shaped by the land and the sea. That's what we yeah, that, your description has transported me back to my childhood because um, every summer we used to visit um, family and friends in um, Spay, Spay Bay and that sort of area. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I remember uh, sort of playing in barley fields next to Glenglasso Distillery at, at one point. And um, yeah, my so most vivid me- memory of those summers is the gorse flowers um, everywhere around that area. Um, it, it really is. Yeah. And that you get close to them and you touch them, that, that coconut smell, that rich coconut mm. vanilla. It's lovely. Yeah, very Think of that. Okay, there's a, there's a challenge for you. You take a ga- glass of the gun glass, evolution, shut your eyes and think about being back 
as a child, not quite drinking whiskey, but in the gorse flowers on the coast. I bet you it'll bring that memory back. <laughs> yeah, my dad was drinking whiskey then, but not me. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing, actually, the, the memory trigger I get from Glasgow uh, when I was a child back in the early 70s was what when, when they used to still have the old school sweet shops, you know, with a guy yeah. with his white coat and the, the waxed wooden counters and the big jars of sweets. That's my memory. If I know particularly the older Glasses into the the, the old and rare, you know, the 60s, 70s, and early 80s stuff. When I know that, it's just like walking back into that old candy store, you know, wax polished counters, oak, you know, jars of boiled sweets. That's exactly what that's my memory trigger. Yeah. It's incredible how the, the smell can evoke such strong memories and such, such uh, sort of emotions amongst people. It's yeah. one of the, the weird uh, things about your sense of smell. I'll, I'll talk another one, another thing with this actually, which is another new one. But my, my mother's family were farmers just at the side of Loch Lomond, because of Gataharn, not far from Glengoyne, actually. And my uncle used to take draft from Ochentoshin, from Loch Lomond distillery, from, from, and he would take draft all to different farms. But we had the draft pit also for the cattle. It was a dairy farm. And I remember, don't know what age, three, four, five years old, going back into the house at the farm, and my mother kind of clipping me around the ear because I'd been playing in the draft pit. So if anybody out there doesn't know what draft is, that's the spent grains after the mash tun. It's got this really, really very strong barley, stewed, steep barley note. And again, if it's left to sit out, it can go kind of sour if you're going to feed it to the cattle. But if I walk past any distillery now and I smell the draft, that takes me back to getting a clip around the ear from my mother <laughs> for playing in the, in the draft pits. You're listening to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, the home of unchill filtered conversation. Benrich got uh, a bit of a makeover in terms of the the labeling and the expressions recently, and I, I think they're fantastic whiskies. Um, what was the the aim of that makeover? Was it um, to attract um, sort of new drinkers, or just to ex- expand the the range? Um, what was the thought process behind that? Yeah, again, I think again that's that's another thing. If you look at you know how how whiskey ranges evolve, how core ranges evolve, particularly. They can only evolve if your warehouses evolve. You know, mm-hmm. if you've only got bourbon barrels in your warehouse, your core range will only be bourbon barrels. You know, sherry cast, you'll only have sherry cast. So if you've got to look at the history of Benriach and actually the, the continual evolution of the core range. So when we bought this distillery back in 2004, you know, opened the warehouse doors, it was great. We had 25,000 casts on purchase, but it was basically bourbon and traditional hogsheads a tiny bit of virgin oak, and maybe some third fill sherry. So if you look at the range that we brought out back then, 2004, that's what the core range was. It was a 12, yeah. 16, 20. So we do some fantastic secondary maturation work through the next couple of years from 2004. Then I don't know if you remember when we, I suppose, hit our peak as far as the volume of expressions in the range. We had uh, the classic range, the peated range, uh, in age statements, but then we had the wood finishes, uh, peated in rum, Madeira, port, Pedramenez, Sherry, and also in non-peated rum, Madeira, port, Pedramenez, but also some Marsalas, some Saturns. So it was pretty crazy back then. It was great. We did have a, a hugely extensive core range of expressions. But then even as we went through that period, we, we started to kind of pull back and put more concentration on on maybe identifying what been we is rather than giving too many expressions. People kind of lost their way of knowing what Benriach was because there were so many expressions. Yeah. So uh, even prior to Brown Foreman, we started trimming back that. Then when Rachel walks into the warehouse, you know, can imagine Rachel Barry walking into a warehouse 13 and almost looking at the warehouse as being her larder. Yeah. You know, she's got more ingredients in that warehouse than, I've ever, than she would ever imagined anywhere else in Scotland. So it took about three years for her to kind of analyze, go in, seeing what we had, seeing the volume of what we had, because we did a fantastic cast, but maybe only of six or seven of them. So you had to kind of look at your quantities, build your quantities up, then give you the, give you the longevity of the core that you could bring, then bring forward. So in short, that's a lot, long answer to short question, but what we've done you know, since September is basically Rachel looking at the warehouse and almost do that next stage uh, of, of the core range evolving 
and bringing together now what I think all the work that's happened there in the last, what is that now, 17 years, 2004. Um, yeah, so it's not, it's not just an overnight rebrand. You know, it's almost all of that, uh, uh, the work we've done across the peated range, across the classic range, across the secondary maturation um, uh, programmes, and then Rachel been able to bring that together. And she's done a remarkable job. If you look across the range, you know, to bring almost the, the, the core at the moment, um, what, what I say to people is we're still wanting to give you, you can taste these four whiskies in our core range, but you can still shut your eyes as we talk and taste, and you will still feel as if you're walking through that warehouse 13. Talk about that. It's almost deconstruct each whiskey. I mean, you start to deconstruct each whiskey in that range, but it's great fun. That's another great thing. It just makes you smile. I know it's early, but you're really putting me in the mood for a whiskey now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the passion just coming through for you is absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. Um, no, it's really, really exciting. And I think, yeah, like as you talked about there, like for Benriach, for me, maybe like five years ago, like trying them, we're quite fortunate here. We have a Celtic whiskey bar and larder down in Killarney, County Kerry. And um, we would have quite an impressive selection of different Brunrichs there. Um, you know, about 25, I'd say different bottlings, all like the 17-year-olds like finished in dark rum. And I think you have kind of hit the nail on the head there. All like standout whiskies on their own. But as you were saying, like as a collective, are they all Brunrich? It was kind of difficult to, to distinguish that. And I think certainly like as um, more people are getting into whiskey, it's very important to have that um clear kind of brand recognition like what makes Ben Reich Ben Reich. Um but yeah always been knockout whiskies but yeah. that's really interesting the thought process behind that. You're right. And actually do you know what actually as well that the labels were all very different. I think even the labeling was yeah. all over the place. Um so it's really brought a concise, real concise nature to it. But another little great thing was even Rachel bringing the new age together or even the, the creative you know, in presentation, we did take inspiration going back to one of the old Benriachs. Now, Benriach was only, I don't have a bottle here, it's in my car actually, <laughs> um, but Benriach was only really bottled one sever as a single malt prior to us taking over. And that was back in um, 94 under Seagram's. Now, that was part of what they called the Heritage Collection. And we were aware of that. We had bottles of it. Rachel was aware of it in our previous life as in whiskey research, whiskey scientist. Um, so when I, so when she brought that together, she actually looked at that old whiskey and the ten year old, which again it's just your start off of your core, really trying to, um, I think, really capture what the what Benriach is, and then further on you can start moving into different layers of flavour to different casts. But that ten year old, the original ten. It really doesn't encapsulate everything about Benriach. And Rachel used that old 10 to almost pull inspiration from that as well, as we did for the creative. So that's why we've got into that lovely duck egg blue, pulling that from the same colour as, as the previous old one back in the 90s, the little red highlights, even the bold, you know, capitalised fonts, going back to that old heritage bottling from then. So um, I like how we've touched on the history and heritage um, rather than just a new creative altogether out of the sky. You know, it, it does touch in that, that history again back there. And the reason I have a whiskey in the car is no, it's not because I was drinking the car. Doing another <laughs> um, I, th- I think they look great and they do taste fantastic. Um, I was particularly blown away by the Smoky 12, um, which is un- unusual because you don't necessarily equate Benrich with the peated style. Although, you know, obviously over the last... 17 years or so we've we've seen peated expressions but i think that's that's seen the kind of smokiness um become uh it's certainly more mature than the the other the sort of previous ones seemed in, in a way and i don't know if that's the mix of you know different cast types being put together in a good way i think it, i think it's all part of that evolution of the warehousing again I, I, i'll keep on saying that no matter what about a whiskey brand changing it doesn't change overnight it all, you're, again, we talk about history and heritage. You can only do with what's been done that's came before you. 
Um, so having fantastic longevity in the second maturation, for example, you know, we're not just a kind of quick finish in the secondary cast. It's, you know, it's been laid down there, really long-term, you know, secondary maturation. Then obviously Rachel's artistry and bring them together. I've never felt them as big and robust. And as you say as well, even that 12-year-old, that's well beyond its years in character and flavour and depth. Um, then you wave in that Pete. If you try, if you get a wee drama of the 12-year-old again, one thing I do, but you know, Pete is always going to be a tricky one to some palates. But I love how on a high, on a on a space side or a northeast Pete, or Benrias particularly anyway, it kind of hides in the nose a little bit. So you know yeah. it's there, but it's almost a bit more distant. And I always talk about the the peat or the, the smoke in the nose. Is it is it is that campfire in your garden or is it two blocks down? You know what I mean? Or is yeah. it at the end of the road? So I always use a distance about peat when it's in the nose, particularly. But then when you come on to the, the taste of the palate, I then talk about, you know, counting, Emily remembers Gregory's girl, <laughs> the, the, the film, counting an elephant. So you go one elephant, two elephants, three elephants. And for me, the peat comes in about 12 elephants, where this peat is very subtle at the start because the cask richness is so full in your palate, it takes about 12 seconds to almost clean your palate of all the cask richness, which then allows the peat to come through. And I love seeing people's faces light up at that point where the the, the cask really pops that peat through. Um, so yeah, that, that's just one of the fun parts of, of seeing how the whiskey develops in palate. But it's also that kind of taking away the maybe intimidation of the peat, which, which people can almost sometimes steal away from even just by seeing the words, never mind by tasting the taste of nosing and nose. Mm. There's um there's a good bit of virgin oak um, being used now, and um I think it's it's probably one of the most difficult <clears throat> sort of casks to use um correctly. I, I suppose is a nice way of saying it. Um, I've tasted a lot of virgin oak whiskies uh, or whiskies with an element of virgin oak that um are particularly difficult to drink. Um. But it's it's done pretty well in Benriach. And um do you think that Virgin Oak has a, a sort of kind of pretty prominent role to be to play in that distillery now? Because um is is it in all of the, the new sort of core range? Um in everything about the tens. It's in the tens. The twelves yeah. don't have it. Um and then we have it in some of the twenty ones um further on. But I think it plays a great role. It, it almost well as you say, I think as well, you've got to get the balance. You know, not every, and I think that's another thing about education, not every distillery can use any casks that are out there in the market, or they can, but they're not going to work, yeah. typically, if it's not, you know, I always say with Bavia, talking about that happy, playful nature, or Glendonach, you need that synergy of the cask and the spirit to be working together. You don't want to make your spirit the best you can and then put it in a cask where it's unhappy. Your, your spirit should be happy in the caskets and, and spending that time there should be fun for the spirit and the cask to, you know, create that partnership. <coughs> but you should know that by your spirit. By knowing your spirit, you know what, what cask will work well. So Virgin Oak, you're never going to want to go to a high refined spirit, you know, or a short middle cut or a, a very much a higher one end middle cut. You want, a, you want a very sweet, you generally want a sweet spirit. Mm. And a sweeter the spirit, it can handle maybe that aggressive, aggressive notes of, of that new oak. And even, you know, a, a spirit that's got a maybe syrupy or richer nature can handle how maybe even the toasting notes can kind of caramelise some of the flavours uh, in, in a spirit. So basically you need, a, you need a, a spirit with quite broad shoulders to carry yeah. the weight of a virgin yeah. oak. And, and Benrias has been doing it. We actually found stuff from the 80s, even before Benrias would have been used as single malts. You know, back for blending, they could have been used back then. They weren't allowed to be used for single malt, but mm. there were experimentations done by me back in the 80s. And I remember filling stuff in 2004, like first fill, filling you make into Virgin Oak and almost just seeing what that progression was like. And honestly, God, four or five years down the line, absolutely amazing. But yeah, I think they've got a great role to play, but not every, not every spirit can handle it. What we do even, we go one step further. Now, that's a great thing about Brown Foreman, and they have got their own cooperages in Alabama and up in Louisville. And when Rachel started, we thought, well, how can we take that virgin oak even further with, with the teams we have out there? So we actually, I don't know if anybody else is doing this with virgin oaks, but we actually started bespoking the toasting and the charring levels to really suit the Benrich DNA. Yeah. Um, 
and, and we, we did maybe three or four experiments with different toasts and chars, then left them to see how they were progressing. And then we, we, we chose what turned out to be the medium char, medium toast that really captured the Benria spirit most uh, without over over caramelizing these flavors or over um, you know giving us too much oak in, in, in amongst that. So yeah, I think that's that's the thing nowadays. Cask procurement, cask quality, and, you know, looking anything to do with casks, we've never known a time like it. What the last 15 years, 20 years maybe you could push it to? There's yeah. never been a time where casks have been so or have been such quality across Scotland. And uh, that's another great thing in the last 20 years. It's came just by the, I suppose, the growth of single malt low all over. Yeah, and talking about evolution and casks, um, Glendronach, uh, obviously famous for Oloroso and, and PX casks. Is there any sort of change in the what's been sort of filled at the moment compared to what was maybe filled um, 20 years ago? Oh, not 20 years ago, because it wasn't open then, but <laughs> 17 years ago at uh, Glendronach, or is it pretty much the same as always, um, mostly kind of sherry casts and then um, a few other things to sort of experiment with? I think, um, you know, back, back in the day, we did we did buy the distillery and there was some uh, American oak in there as well. But when we did things like, um, we did some Sauternes, Muscatels, back back in the old days, and we did utilise some of that American oak to, to almost play, have that little play around with some secondary cast maturation. But after we did it once, maybe six or seven casts of each of the refinishes, just to see what they were like, you know, it was purely for fun. Just, you don't know until you try. So we did a few different things. So Tern worked out well. Um, you know, Claret supports worked beautifully. Um, but we thought, okay, let's let's not diversify out of that sherry. We've had a bit of fun playing around and seeing how it works, mm. but let's just um, keep that sherry classic. The, the ports do work well and the Clarets. And what we are looking at is maybe going back to that or some of these, the old world wines, Clarets, Bordeaux, um, you know, the, the yeah. ports, so that's not a that's that's quite a good again relevance to that old school. Basically, the casks that would have been stored there back in eighteen twenty six before the sherry casks really became into its well sherry casks really came into, come into their kind of heyday in the eighteen forties eighteen fifties. So prior to that, you would have got the old world wine casks that would have been quaffed in the country houses and mansions around the north of Scotland. Yeah, I suppose it would have been whatever they could get their hands on at the time. Rather than uh, yeah. so it wasn't such a thing as a cast management uh, sort of program or anything. Well, just to touch on that, that was a lot of that back then was driven by the blenders as well because you you made whiskey for yourself, but you had huge contracts to fill for blenders. So sometimes the blender would supply the cask, and you would fill it, store it, send it back to him. He would send it back to you. So again, yeah. as a distiller, you you maybe didn't have really you, you brought in cask for your own whiskey, but there were a lot of cask movement from that reciprocal side of spirit deals back then which you still get today actually but to touch on the px and all that also i think that's the two that work a lot of people ask us more you know we could diversify into other styles of sherry but it goes back to that synergy of, of, of spirit you know you look at the new make spirit of glenglassa sorry glendronach if i can touch on the, the spirit style there for a second but you know the spirit and almost it's got blueberries blackberries so it's already got a blueberry blackberry nose but then you, you go in a bit deeper to get the spice. It's got sandalwood, it's got leather, it's got tobacco, it's got a viscosity to the hands, so it's got an oiliness. So if you think about these flavors, even in new mixed spirit, blackberries, blueberries, the spices being the sandalwood, you know, the leather, the, the tobacco leaves, these are flavors normally found in sherry cans. Mm. Yeah. Again, you can see the relevance and how the distillers before us knew that that spirit works perfectly in the sherry cast. I think what the Pedro Jimenez does is maybe highlight more of the fruits. And sometimes with all that also, you can maybe get start getting into the two drier notes, the tannins are too much nuttiness or too much leather. So always having that combination of two all that also in PX means that Rachel, as master blender, can really work in the balance of, you know, bringing the real heavy fruit depths from the PX and then the, the more nutty complex decks and aromas from Miller also. This is quite a, a broad question here in the sense that, you know, obviously the focus with the, the rebrand on, on Ben Reich and, you know, Glendronach is, is so famed for their 
further use of sherry casks. And I'm just kind of curious to kind of see like what's the kind of future plans for Glenglassa? What's Brown Foreman? What's the kind of angle that they're going to try play up from that distillery? Well, do you know what? I was doing a tasting to Norway with Glenglassa, and actually Glenglassa is a fantastic lockdown. <laughs> a lot of people have been discovering Glenglassa through the last year and a half. I think that's one of the good things about maybe doing more online tastings and, and people maybe reaching out for something different or trying to find that, that little smaller thing. So Glenglass is tiny. Even when Stuart Nickerson opened it back up back in the end of 2008, 2009, made about 150,000 years a year. Nothing, you know, <laughs> in, in today's world. And again, we're, we're a bit more than that now, but the whiskey is now into its double figures. So we, we, we do have age stock there. And we did release what was the Coastal Cast Collection, and that was a combination of some 11 and even 10, 11 years old, almost 12 years old whiskies that we put out as a, a small batch. But I think when you when you come to release a range, you've got to make sure you've got the volumes in your warehouse to fulfill it. So I think we've been quite good at, Rachel's had plenty of time to assess the warehouses and look at, I'm sure she's got in her palette and her mind what she wants to bring together. And we're just waiting in the warehouses to say, Okay, have we got enough to to to, to launch this? Uh, you yeah. know, obviously it's going to sell hugely well across the world. So make sure make, make sure we've got enough of it. <laughs> but yes, that that time will come, and when that time is going to be, I don't know. But um, that that's the kind of things that a lot of people forget about. Is yes, you can launch a whiskey range if you've got ten year old whiskey, but you've got to make sure you've got enough of it, and that's sometimes the wise thing to do is to maybe leave it a little bit, take your time, and make sure you've got enough stocks to sustain that. But the younger stuff just now shows a great, um, shows the distillery extremely well. And I think when people, when it is launched, you know, when it does come of age, and that's one thing that makes me excited, maybe even seeing what the glass will be like when it's in its 15, 16 years, it's going to be so unique. It's, uh, yeah, that's what kind of gives me goosebumps thinking about the years to come. Fantastic. Yeah, it's the, it's the evolution, as you, as you said. It's, you know, it's planning 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead. Um, that's really, like, interesting and important to have that, you know, production aspect into the all very well wanting new whiskies here then and whenever, but it's um, the stocks have to be there. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, you travel the world and people say, oh, this, this whiskey, it's hard to find, hard to find. It's like, well, can you not produce more of it? Is that well? If you can find me that magic tap in the warehouse, we can produce as much as you want. But until I can find it, if, unless I can find that magic tap, <laughs> that's all it is. <laughs> there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle, like I suppose you could call it, on uh, sort of social media over the sort of proposed sort of change at Glendronic of the, the, the range and the uh, move towards chill filtration on on the sort of core products. Um, What's your take on that? Obviously, it, it, there's a reason for doing it, which is creating a bit more sort of flexibility. But yeah, m- maybe you can sort of explain it. And uh, do you think there was a bit of an overreaction amongst Glendronic aficionados? I don't think so. I don't think an overreaction. I, and I like your word kerfuffle. Just let's let's call it a kerfuffle. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, no, I don't think it was an overreaction because for me, it just shows you how, how passionate people are for whiskey, you know? Mm. And again, we know we live in, in that you know, social media environment where where things can be talked about in such a way. And again, people are free to do so. And, you know, if people are just, yeah, it's great to see that passion that people have. Um, and also it does create debate. It even might even go further on to create more education in a consumer who didn't know one thing about this topic. And then they go out and search and find, that's the great thing about single model. I think people never stop learning. I think you always take a, a base question and you, you people find their own path to learn from that and if yeah. that's what this does that's perfect as well i think i welcome that saves me talking about it and tastings if people go out and educate themselves on these topics but i think um i i think one of the things about maybe the 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 whole i don't even want to mention the word because sometimes it's a word that scares people more than the process you know i think the fact that we've just taken something off the label we didn't just do that and, and chill filter the whiskey like they used to do back in the 1970s, you know. You know, whiskey technology's changed, research and development's changed. Our own, you know, um, research and development um, capabilities have changed. So 
let's say you can filter without doing the damage that maybe people assume you're doing if they're thinking of a filtration yeah. process that used to be maybe taken by blend. It, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all process, which I think that terminology can sometimes put in people's heads. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and we, Mitchell's not going to go into the warehouse and bring together the most fantastic whiskies, then ramp it through a 100-filter bank of, you know, in sheets, you know what I mean? Um, you've got to almost look at each one in its own its own right and, and look at how we can stabilise this whiskey to travel around and, and make sure it's the, the best enjoyment wherever it lands, whether it's in Winnipeg, West Coast of Scotland or in Penang, you know, that, that it does get there and people enjoy it the same, of the same quality. And even the SWA regulations, you know, if you look at their detail, it does say any levels of filtration can be done within the Scots Scots whiskey terminology as long as it does not affect taste, flavour, or colour. Mm-hmm. So, so again, that so we're not. Yeah, the processes we're using, I think we know through research and development, through just trial and error. We, you know, looking at our filtration systems and, and at the level of filtration on each bottle, we're, we're, all we're doing is stabilising the chance of that flocculation without yeah. harming the whiskey set. And and to explain to anyone listening who, who doesn't know what we're talking about, <laughs> um, it's particularly the 12-year-old, isn't it? Because that's bottled at 43%. And if if you're releasing a non-chill-filtered whiskey at that percentage, there's a chance of a slight haze forming yeah. on it when it gets... But that's um, that's another well. thing as well. Maybe it's one of those things that people just maybe read read that one bit of detail, but every whiskey will flock and it will haze, will go cloudy in different conditions, no matter of the strength. So it's not the fact that every whiskey at 46 doesn't go hazy, it will, you know. And you've got to remember now, we touch on again the progression in casks in the last 15, 20 years, you know, the, the probability of your your whiskey hazing when you use a richer cask is higher because what you're getting is is the esterification of these acids and alcohols that are going to combine and and, and bind to make it hazy. So in some ways you could say it's the richness of casks today which are maybe leading into having to take a little bit more and, and, you know, a little bit of filtration to to stabilise that whiskey. Yeah, to to sort of highlight how um, sort of fickle a world it is, I think pretty much everyone who was talking about that have stopped talking about it now and moved on to complaining about other places and other things. (laughs) So it's kind of like, well, it's done now, it's forgotten, and people are still going to enjoy the whiskeys no matter what, you know? Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Um, But but that's great. Again, it's it's the world we live in. It's a... it's a starch top starch discussion, and if people have learned from that, great. If they've, if they've taken their knowledge a bit further, that's that's yeah. the whole that's the whole meaning of the game. We're talking to you, obviously not in person here. We're over Zoom, and uh, it's been a, a tricky year um, for everyone. But what what sort of effect has the pandemic had on the three distilleries and? how you sort of predict for the future has it kind of thrown the the form book up in the air is it kind of pretty hard to say what you need to bottle now and what you need to sort of um reserve you know for the future the, the trickiest thing i suppose well trickiest with two two main hurdles i suppose you know rachel being three years in the planning and even three years in the planning for the redesign of the new ben back and then covid comes along then we have to launch it should have been a little bit earlier it should have been in June, June, July last year, you know, ramping up for the festivals through um, the end of last year, but obviously that didn't happen. So, you know, we, we plan to launch around all the major festivals in that, you know, October, uh, August, September, yeah. October period. Rachel's is the problem. How does Rachel physically get up to taste every cast that goes into any of these expressions, no matter which, which distillery it is or which bottle, Rachel has, has to taste every cask individually. So you can imagine if we're working with them, um, you know, even our warehouse restrictions and, and manpower, Rachel had issues getting her sampling program to yeah. create the next bottlings of the next expression. Um, you know, it's not done by a spreadsheet. It's not done by numbers. And she could just go and say, give me that stout, that stout, and that stout. Um, she has to actually taste every single cask individually. So that was a hurdle. That set her back a little bit. 
and a few knock-ons, our small bat, our batches uh, releases suffered a little bit because of that, and that was purely delay um, in, in sampling as well as bottling, obviously with limited um, staffing there. But we've we've got through it. As far as my my role, this is the longer longest I've ever been in one place at one time. Um, but I've still managed to travel the world from from my kitchen here. So yeah, I'm still across. You know, the time, even with time difference, 9, 9 a.m. in the morning, I'll be in Australia um, across Europe through the afternoon into Russia in the evening, into America till 3, 4 a.m. in the morning to California or to San Francisco anyway. So um, I'm still managing to cover the world. And I think I've really enjoyed the online way of working because I've noticed over time the people that maybe initially signed up for your tastings were well, maybe the people you knew, but you know the, the fan base of whiskey consumers that, that maybe that had been to the shows before, that then signed up for your online tastings. But then gradually over that year, you maybe got a group of friends that one of them was a whiskey person, then you get five others, then you maybe got a partner of another one that was a whiskey fan, and all of a sudden then you got a family of this whiskey. <laughs> so the people, the, the the reach outside of that maybe one what initially was that small group has grown and grown and grown. Um, and I think that's a fantastic thing. So, um, you know, what I've seen online, it's really brought a, a bigger a bigger world to to single malts. Yeah, it's, it's mad because we've had some something similar with our sort of online tastings that we do. And in a way, being a part has actually brought a lot of people together um, with similar interests. And, you know, our online tastings probably have two or three times the amount of people taking part that you'd normally get in a room if you had had them in a bar somewhere, you know. So it's yeah, it's interesting that um, to see, see people expanding their knowledge of whiskey. Well, I suppose what else have they got to do a lot of the time? You know? That's right. And I think in the first maybe four months, I said the first four months of lockdown period when, you know, people were really coming out with the tastings for the first time, there was that thought and I heard it so many times, but I never knew, I didn't think, I knew it wouldn't happen. People going, oh, but the online fatigue will set in, you know, but it, I don't think with single malts it did. I think if, if nothing else, maybe other spirits that were, people were diving into, people came from other spirit avenues to single malt. That, that's what I seem to find. Mm-hmm. So I did not see any, you know, online fatigue when it came to the, 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 the online tasting presence. Yeah, I think it's even as simple enough as, you know, buying a gift for someone that you want to see their face, but you maybe don't want to sit and chat for, you know, hours and hours because you maybe spoke to them last week and it's, you know, tuning in, learning something different. Um, With the tastings we've been doing, like sometimes there'll be a couple of new releases, which, you know, really satisfy the really hardcore whiskey customers, um, but then also kind of core range as well and introducing people to new things as well. Um, and it's really exciting to see like all the kind of different demographics of, of people and then all kind of being brought together for this kind of, you know, common cause, I like to call it. Yeah. No, I've loved it. I loved it. So I don't know. People do me ask me, you know, I, I think I think now we've gone through this. The both avenues can work hand in hand. Yeah. It's, um, you know, can be, and I think even you know, shows, we're talking actually with our colleagues, our different ambassadors across Asia and Australia yesterday morning. So Whiskey Live, there's been a few Whiskey Live shows in Australia and in um, Japan and Taiwan. And even they've structured differently now, um, almost that more one-to-one stand basis, maybe a slightly smaller group at a stand and, you know, getting a more one-to-one interaction. And maybe that's how whiskey whiskey shows will go. That it, it might not be the case. Your your booth will be the same as it used to be, where people will just be fifteen deep, and you just see a hand come over the top. Yeah. And go, give me, give me your oldest one. You know, yeah. you don't get that anymore. I think you will. You'll get a more personal experience even at the shows. I think going forward. Those whiskey shows are great fun, but yeah, when you get into the scrum of trying to get to a table, and there's there's some whiskey bore at the front, probably. Uh, Taking all the, the time, you know, <laughs> probably talking about chill fil- filtration to the brand <laughs> ambassador. Um, yeah. Uh, I, so, I don't, yeah. Know, I don't know if it's ever been done in, in Ireland, but um, 
I've seen it done in the US a lot. There was a guy in New York did it a lot. And then I think there's a couple of them in the UK, but did you ever hear of the whiskey speed dating? No. No, sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, so basically I'm on the table and I'll get maybe maybe one person or two, depending on the numbers, but you'll just have five minutes to do your speed date with three whiskeys <laughs> to that swap one or two people and then the bell goes next. Push. So it's almost this kind of speed dating table where people just come and you can blast them with information and, and, uh, and, and go for it full, full, full on. And it's a nice way to work, slightly different as well, different environment, keeps you kind of fresh and punchy. And then at the end of it, people will, you know, discuss who was the best date. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my um, God, that's brilliant. Uh, moving on a, a bit of a sort of uh, tangent now, but um, I don't know if you're up to date with what's going on in Ireland, but it, it's been a crazy last sort of five years in Ireland. And it, it's kind of mirrored a little bit in Scotland with so many distilleries cropping up all over the place. And um, do you think it's sustainable, you know, or is there going to be a market for all the new people? Because there's, there's going to be a hell of a lot of, uh, well, there already is in Ireland a, a lot of young whiskey coming onto the market. And um, how do you think these new guys are going to get on? Yeah, again, I've seen that again. We've got slain just uh, down the road as well. Mm. But um, I, I think, I think different environments as well, and the fact that the whiskey world is so large. You know, um, I think when you talk about maybe historical booms and busts, that for me was definitely fed towards the the the, bl- the blending part of the industry. Yeah, how when you produce so much and the blended whiskies were not quite taken off as you imagined that year, you're going to left with getting more surplus stocks this year. And I think most people, I know we've stopped the reciprocal deals, for example, you know, selling new makes better for blending. And I think there is that that push to maybe make your when, when you are producing spirit, it's more for yourself, it's for, for your single malts, and there's. Yeah. A lot of people being paid a lot of good money to forecast that uh, growth across the world, and, and and I think when you also look at your ages and and your your longevity, um, you would you would only hope that a lot of these new distilleries aren't just going to be always you know they will progress and get older as well. So you might see a wave of maybe a lot of younger NES whiskies out there, but you would you would hopefully think that going forward they would just build their core ranges again as their whiskey evolves. Uh, through that, uh, but it, it, you're right. It does. It does make that that shelf space more valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you guys. It's like um, you go in somewhere and it's uh, there's never enough shelf space in a store, no matter what size of store you have. You know, so it's getting it's getting that and holding that shelf space. I suppose <laughs> is the main thing. Not even getting it, it's holding it and, and making sure you've got a turnover on it. But I don't know. Um, yeah, the whiskey, the, the 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 demographic of consumers is getting broader and broader and broader all the time. So I, I definitely don't see that thirst waning uh, for whiskey whatsoever. Even American whiskeys, you know, look at the amount of distilleries in America that have started up recently. It's not and, and across Europe. So we, we can go outside of UK and Ireland, and you can just look at the whole global picture of whiskey. Um. But let's say the family of cousins being Scotland and Ireland, obviously we do it best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a lot more time to perfect it. Yeah. But yeah, I, you mentioned um, distilleries outside of Europe and there are some some excellent whiskies um, being made all over the world now. And uh, I, I think the interesting thing that, that does crop up is that they all sort of... Um, mature slightly differently or it's at different rates um if i was to hand you or if you won the euro millions and you got like 20 million euros or pounds uh, where would you want to set up a distillery well the, just to be frankly honest as you mentioned there's not many corners that haven't got one now yeah so but do you know what going back to my dumbarton roots <coughs> and dumbarton was such a big whiskey town then it was such a shame that they knocked down what was the massive iconic red yeah. brick distillery right in the middle of the sit- of the town? So um, yeah, that would maybe invest back in the hometown, back in the mm. bar. Uh, 
put that back in the whiskey map because Little Mill was just around the corner as well. I remember Little Mill, yeah. And it, yeah, it's interesting you met, mentioned Dumbarton because um, the Inverleven uh, stills that were there making malt whiskey, which uh, it's pretty hard to get, yeah. um, they actually ended up in uh, Waterford Distillery in Ireland. Um, which kind of goes to show, like uh, everything's sort of interchangeable. You know, um, everything gets recycled and reused all over the place. No, that's right. And I think I've got. I'm sure I saw a picture of them leaving to go to Ireland. Actually, I remember that uh, yeah. coming up one time. Even talking about again European whiskies, Capardonnach, Speyside, down at Rothes here. These stills are now in Liège in Belgium. So, oh, wow. uh, so that's quite cool. Um, um, but yeah, a wee distillery right on right on the Clyde there. And funny enough, my mother used to work in, she didn't work in the shipyards actually, if you know what I mean, but she worked in the, the hull designing part of the shipyards. <laughs> um, and there's some nice historical um, parts of the old Dumbarton heritage there as well. So a wee distillery right, wouldn't go amiss in that wee corner of the Clyde. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, sorry, just quickly there for our listeners, I know Al mentioned in the introduction that you're a keeper of the quake. Could you just tell them what that is? Because I have kind of used that terminology a couple of times over here and it's not maybe hugely something that a lot of Irish people would be aware of. Yeah, again, it's amazing to, to obviously be, to be nominated and be to be put forward, nominated and become a, a keeper. It was absolutely phenomenal. All done without my knowing, funnily enough. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, and, you know, it's a community of whiskey people actually across the world. So it's not just a Scottish thing. It's, it's people who have dedicated almost their life's passion to single malt globally and from all, all different avenues. It could be whether it's from production, whether it's from sales, whether it's from a marketing point of view, whether it's just somebody who's actually been pivotal to the growth through sheer passion in, in a market. So it's a, it's a fantastic group, global group of just whiskey enthusiasts, passionate, passionate people at whiskey. Um, from all from all walks of life, and yeah, I would put it up there as one of the best nights of of my career and life. It was some night, I must admit. <laughs> a few whiskies had that night then. It was crazy. It was crazy. And the fact <laughs> was, I didn't know about it, and I was in Singapore, and my colleague phoned me up and said, "Sure, you need to get back for whatever it was of of, of April. I think it was April one." I was like, hey, what's wrong? I thought I was getting the sack or something. You know, I thought I was in trouble. <laughs> he was asking me to fly back to Singapore. Flew back in Edinburgh Airport, six in the morning. He said, get up to Blair Athol. So I went back to Rathol, got picked up my kilt. I was in Blair Athol for half past 10. And she, he'd already arranged my family to be there as well at this kind of B&B. Oh. So, yeah, basically from leaving Singapore, 12 hours later, I was, I was in, uh, in wow. Blair Athol. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> I think that's that's a great note to end it on. It's been great talking to you today, Stuart, and um, learning about the whiskies of Glendronach, Benrich, Glenglasser. I think the the future looks good. If anyone hasn't tried the whiskies, then you, you absolutely have to because they're amongst the best and amongst the best value and sort of flavour price ratio. So go out and try them. So thank you so much for talking to us, Stuart, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in real life sometime soon. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to get back over traveling again. Uh, and if you guys are over, I'm sure you will be taking a, a wee homage back to the to Scotland as well, Julie. Uh, give us a call. Brilliant. Yeah. And likewise, if you're in uh, Slane, give us a shout. It's not too far for us to, to head down there. And uh, yeah, no, it's been great. Thank you so much. Cool. No problem at all, guys. Well, thank you. Cheers, Joe. Cheers. You're listening to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, the home of unchill filtered conversation. Thank you once again to Stuart. This podcast really put us in the mood for a whiskey, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thanks to Edward Dillon and company, and of course, thank you to Brown Foreman for the help in setting up the interview. Cheers to Julie for joining in on this one and teaching me how to pronounce Quaish properly. Look out for the next podcast in a few weeks. If you're enjoying the Celtic Whiskey Pod, then don't forget to like and subscribe and please feel free to message us with any points of view. Sláinte for now.